Last year, in mid-May, Frederick County experienced some very severe storms. Over a number of days, the county got about half a foot of rain, and it flooded many of the areas, leaving them drenched and damaged. During the first rain on May 15th, there were at least 300 911 calls and about 60 rescues performed, as the heavy rains ended up leaving some people stranded on uh, park tables or in their cars, just putting them in a situation where they were experiencing some very fast flooding. And that wasn't the end of the rain. The rain continued for several days after. But now, a year later, we're going to be talking about the impact of those days and how it's still affecting residents. Now, neither Wyatt nor I were here during the storms. Um, so we actually asked um, some of our reporters to help us out connecting with people who had experienced damage to their houses or were in the floods and it watched the waters come down um, to kind of tell us a little bit about what happened and what the lasting damage was. So I met with Cynthia Richards at her house in the Cloverfield neighborhood of Frederick. She walked me through her basement and told me about how she had eight inches of water in every square foot of the basement during the flooding. She explained how the water came up through the pipe in her shower, as well as through one of the uh, draining pipes in the basement. Last year when this happened, you could walk down and you could just, you were hit with the mold, the smell of the mold. And when we woke up that morning, we just got to like the third stair down and we could see the water. It was almost up to that bottom stair there. We went to bed about 8 p.m. the night before and then we got up about 5 a.m. and I started to come down the stairs. I didn't have my glasses or contacts and I could see that there was something wrong with the floor but I couldn't really see what. So I yelled for my husband and I came down and he came down and then I went back up and got flip-flops on and um, he was just sitting on the stairs and I had my glasses on at that point and I could just see that it was when I looked this way, when I looked left and then when I looked right, the entire, this entire space, the two rooms in the back, the laundry room, all of this was completely under like eight inches of water. Okay. Um, and so what was, you know, here before you had to start renovating? So before it was a big space like this, it was drywall, floor to ceiling, and it was carpet, like fully carpeted in every room. We've always had the, um, like this little basement apartment with the kitchen. There were cabinets and stove and refrigerator and all of that. Um, and as you can see, we're still just, you know, going about and doing this on our own, just replacing things. We don't have a full refrigerator just yet. We did replace the cabinets and the countertop and we were able to salvage the stove actually. Um, so yeah, there was furniture. We had over $60,000 worth of damages between uh, the structural damages, the appliances we lost, and all of our, our belongings that were down here. Okay. Um, and so in terms of you know, having to renovate, how much money did that cost to have to fix everything? So we ran into an issue with, this happened in May, and we didn't receive payout until end of August, beginning of September. So we spent a lot of our own money. Our homeowner's insurance wouldn't cover anything because the county had sent out a press release taking responsibility, which was great. They totally did the right thing, and I can't speak highly enough of that. But the amount of time it took between taking blame and then the investigation they did that their insurance company did was just so long. So because of 57 people in this area were affected, and then immediately thereafter, Ellicott City happened. 
contractors, mold mitigation companies, uh, cleanup companies were just booked out so long and they were basically charging the top tier of their pricing if not you know really price gouging because they knew a lot of insurance money was involved here a lot of insurance money was involved in Alcott City we had quotes that were just astronomical um, so we ended up doing a lot of it on our own just because we couldn't get anybody and because at the time we didn't have the money um, so we did all I did a ton of research um, through the EPA and OSHA and just any scholarly article that I could find to read up on mold mitigation. So my husband and I, we did all of that our own, on our own. We tore out all of the drywall on our own. Um, we rented dumpsters and filled dumpsters with, you know, just the stuff that was bad. It was a lot of work, like a lot more than we had ever anticipated. And as you can see, there's still a lot that's a work in progress just because I own two businesses. I sell LuLaRoe and I have a pet sitting business and that keeps me incredibly busy. My husband works a full-time job in Rockville as a Department of Defense contractor. So I mean really the basement renovation now takes place in our downtime or the remaining of what's remaining of the renovation. All right and in terms you talked about the county so mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that process or what the county did? So when this happened um we, we knew that we weren't at fault because once we got down here, we could see in our bathroom that the water was actually coming out of the shower drain in the bathroom. So it wasn't seeping in through our walls. Our sump pump had not failed. It was not us, basically. Um, at that point, I started trying to call around and talk to people. They said to make a report, so I made a report um, and did all of that then didn't really hear anything um, and of course my basement is just a wreck and it's an environmental thing and you know so I was on top of it and County Executive Gardner ended up having a press conference that for flood updates so I went to that and I listened to everything that she had to say she, they'd done a FEMA walkthrough and all that and at the end when she asked for questions I said okay um, I understand that there's infrastructure issues within the county and things have happened but what about Clover Hill and she was like, what about Clover Hill? And I said, well, from what we're hearing, the wastewater treatment plant met capacity, backed up into the lines, pressurized the lines, and pushed water into our, some of our houses. And not just water, but some people had raw sewage. We were, we were very lucky that we had mostly groundwater. I mean, I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> I wouldn't bathe in it. I wouldn't play in it. But I mean, we had, it was not smelly sewage. So... I talked to her about that. She ended up, her and her office ended up taking names and coming out and taking a look. And that's when the ball really got kicked off and they turned it over to their insurance. And I, you know, I understand that they have to gather information and there's certain timelines and things, but for people like me, whose homeowner's insurance washed their hands of it and said, no, I'm sorry. You know, the county's taking responsibility. We're not paying you anything we were left between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I think one quote from mold mitigation was like $9,000. We don't have $9,000 just laying around. Um, we had to wait. We had to call our mortgage company. We're, my husband's a veteran, so we have a VA loan through Navy Federal. And we had to call Navy Federal and say, hey, do you want the mortgage payment or do you want us to use this to save the house? 
And they were like, yeah, save the house. We'll put in a hardship note and just explain what's going on. So luckily they did that for like three months, I think. So we could use that money to pay for what we had to do with getting all of the, the material that ended up being environmentally unsafe out of here. And so when you first came down, um, you said that the water, there was being eight inches of water. So how did you get mm-hmm. rid of the water? So I immediately, um, <laughs> the first call I made was to my mom. She's four and a half hours away in West Virginia. And I said, I need an adult or adult <laughs> to come and just like be moral support. And then, um, you know, mind you, this is maybe 6 a.m., 7 a.m. now. And I've tried to call the rental places in Frederick, and people have already woken up, and all of the some all of the pumps are already rented and gone from their shops. So I called Hagerstown and went up there to MPE Rentals, and they had an old pump that we were able to rent, and um, we rented that. Our next door neighbor had a pump that they brought over, and for like four to six hours we pumped and the level pretty much stayed the same. And that's a fire hydrant size hose of water coming out of our house. So that goes to tell you how much more water was pouring in. If we hadn't have woken up early, we would have had two feet plus of water in our house like some people did. The lady two houses down, she went to work and she came back with like two and a half feet of water in her her basement. Um, so the damage would have been much, much worse. But yeah, that's what we did. We rented the pump from MPE. The neighbor helped us with their pump once they were done pumping out their basement. And then I actually went down to Gaithersburg because it only goes down to like two inches or an inch. And you, we ended up having to get a pool pump that you put on a, the top of a pool. And that pumps out like down to a fourth of an inch of water. And then the rest was shot backing. Um, And so with that, then how, you know, what did it look like once all the water was out of the basement? So once the water was out, um, we had two couches, a recliner, a bed, um, my husband's pool table, two club chairs, coffee tables, books. We had actually, we had bags and bags and bags of clothes that we had spread out on the floor on this side that we were sorting through to donate from just that we had collected to donate like to the mission or to the Goodwill or to Salvation Army or something. All of those were ruined and just soaking wet. Um, So it was just, it was devastating to look and to know how much cleanup was going to have to be done. And what did it smell like? I know you mentioned it wasn't sewage, but still. So it didn't smell in the first few days. And I I had a carpet blower, like I, I, I do a lot of yard sailing and thrifting and randomly I came across a carpet blower one time and I was like oh that would be handy like for painting if you want to dry a room quicker or whatever so we had we actually had a carpet blower and we had that going Um, but I mean even with that carpet blower it's still the mold spell still um, started to permeate about day two or day three and so you know could you see the mold um I don't remember at that point. I don't think we could see it at that point, but we were already starting to, we'd already got the dumpster. We'd already started pulling everything up um, and out to the to the dumpster. My, I, I think at that time I had severely twisted my ankle, so I was doing what I could, but the brunt of it was on my husband. And then he had to go back to work after a few days, taking a few days off. And I actually put in a thing on Facebook and said, you know, I'll pay you X amount of money an hour if you'll come and 
tear out drywall and carry up tear up carpet and carry out stuff from this flooding and that's what I did so I let random strangers into my house like four men they came in and um, they used our saw and cut the drywall and pulled it out where my husband had started it pulled up the carpeting took up refrigerator couches anything that was ruined clothing um, and that was really like a blessing at that time I'm glad that we actually you know had the money to do that just on our own because if not black mold would have definitely set in because even they did us so much for us but even before I could fully feel confident in my research to do the mold mitigating and before I realized like we're just not going to be able to afford this right now um, even before between that point and the next the mold some of the mold did set in and it was you know it was very unnerving to see it like the black mold just starting to form and come down the next day and see it be more so yeah so can you play me with the um where the water started coming in from yeah so it came in through this floor drain here and then um it came in over here in this shower and so you see there's a pretty big lip there with the shower and when I came like when I came down and saw it and my husband was just sitting there he was just overwhelmed and I didn't even think like I didn't even really use common sense I just kind of plunged into the water and was like we've got to stop where this is coming in at um, not knowing where it was yet and then as soon as I rounded the corner, this door was open and I saw it bubbling up and spilling over, like circling out. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to call the county, the city, you know, figure out what's going on because this is not, I don't know how to stop water coming out of my shower drain. This is a totally new thing. And what color was the water when it was coming out? Mostly clear. I mean, you could tell that it was just like gray water. Like I didn't know that it was rain runoff at the time, but... Um, I wasn't thinking about it. If I'd thought about it, I would have obviously noticed that it was, you know, just run off. So when you said that you tried to like come in here and try to stop it, like what, what were your like what were your thoughts to how to stop it? Well, I came through. I came down and turned the corner to stop it because I thought, well, maybe our hot water tank. And then when I saw this, I was like, very bad words. We're not going to be able to stop this. And that was basically when I just turned back around and you know went upstairs to get my cell phone to call and try and figure out who to talk to about it. So you mentioned that this was um, this is where a lot of the water is coming from so when you came around here how much water was in this bathroom? So this house is like 2200 square feet I think maybe 3200 square feet with the basement so I mean the floor plan upstairs is as big as, like, the downstairs is as big as the upstairs. There was eight inches of water in every corner of this downstairs. From the door to the basement, into the laundry room, into that room and the kitchen we were just standing in, down this little hallway, into this great room over here where my husband's pool table is, and into two full bedrooms and cl with closets on this side. Okay. So, um, you know, was it rushing out fast or was it... Yeah. It filled this space from 8 p.m. between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. So Cynthia is able to tell us a little bit about how the flooding affected her home. But to get an idea of how the May 2018 flooding affected Frederick 
Quebec City on a whole, we had to bring in another reporter. So we brought Samantha Hogan in to talk to us a little bit about these stories that she's working on about the anniversary of the flood. And you're working on this story with Jeremy? Yeah, Jeremy Arias and I, um, who is our new City of Frederick reporter, um, and I collaborated on an article that really looks at what went right and what went wrong um, a year ago and what we've learned since then. So now it's my understanding that you happen to just take a vacation during the one environmental breaking news story of the year. Yeah, so I am our resident environment, agriculture, and now state house reporter. And I think I joked with our entire staff that uh, breaking news doesn't usually happen on the environment beat. And I went away from my sister's uh, gra- uh, college graduation and we went underwater. <laughs> so now what did go right when handling the flood last year? I think that when we look back at the flood, we do have to acknowledge that a lot went right in downtown Frederick. So I sat down and spoke with Zach Kirshner, who's the director of public works for the city of Frederick. And we talked about how the Carroll Creek uh, flood control project, which we probably just interact with on a daily basis as the linear park that runs over it, is a is a huge success when it comes to flood control. Um, and when specifically when we're dealing with uh, stormwater and all the water that's coming off of the city streets and um, essentially being funneled into what he described as four train-sized tunnels that were installed underneath um, our streets uh, and now what is the linear park. And so that was able to hold a mammoth amount of water. And the water that it wasn't able to hold was able to spill over into Baker Park, which is this natural floodplain. So what we didn't have was a bunch of downtown businesses or a bunch of downtown homes going under just feet and feet and feet of water and millions of gallons of water that um, fell on Frederick County and accumulated in the basin. Now, what went wrong was in the areas where we don't have this kind of same storm water control methods in place. And and part of that is because it's incredibly expensive to install this, and it wasn't always required. So until about the 1980s, we don't see the first kind of stormwater regulations come out in Maryland. And it wasn't when you built a house or you built a development or you built a shopping center or if you built US-15, you didn't have to uh, mediate for how much water was going to be coming off of these hard surfaces, which we can also call an impervious surface, because that means that water, which is falling from the sky, cannot penetrate the ground and essentially be soaked up through natural groundwater processes. Instead, it moves in sheets off of our roads, off of our roofs, off of our driveways, off of our cars, and it goes um, and it searches for a place where it can it can um, penetrate the ground, where it can inflow. And so where we see some of the most four uh, most flood prone areas in Frederick is around Modder Avenue, Klein Boulevard, West Patrick Street near the West Frederick Middle School and North Market Street near Schifferstadt. And um, just one of those great examples of a place that um, kind of is at the end of the pipe, if you will, because actually it's the beginning of the pipe. There's nowhere for this water to go is the downtown YMCA property. Now, this is pretty significant. You probably saw many photos. You probably also heard um, the state government considering sending them money to help continue with some of these flood mitigation processes. What is essentially happened is they had about 10 feet of water seep into their building. And that was because um, uh, five inches of rain is projected to have, that's the low end that we're projected to have fallen on the central part of Frederick County uh, between May 15th and May 16th. And 
the majority of the 150 acre um, drainage area that sits above the YMCA's property has no it has no significant flood control or stormwater control projects. It doesn't have man-made ponds that would, you know, accumulate the water and slowly release it. It doesn't have inlets to let um, water get off the streets. And so what you have is just this huge swath of water. And uh, Zach uh, actually calculated it for me and just roughly if those five inches of rain had fallen on the 150 acres over that time period, we're talking about an estimated 20 million gallons of water that were surging down to where the YMCA's property is. And it's going through a tunnel that's rel- substantially sized. I mean, a, a full-grown individual can stand up inside this pipe, but it's not sized to hold 20 million gallons of water. And so, you know, usually we have storm drains that will direct the water in. Well, in fact, the water pressure was so high that it was pushing the water out of those inlets. And so that low-level parking lot beside the YMCA property, was just be- it just became you know, a pool of its own. And unfortunately, it got um, it seeped in through the bottom of the building, it came up through the sewer pipes. And we just had another devastating 10 foot flood inside that building, which they had just recovered from one in 2015 as well, where they had also had a devastating flood um, that had damaged a lot of the property. So small amounts of rain, can really lead to huge accumulations of water when there isn't this infrastructure in place. So we have a really good example uh, at at Carroll Creek Linear Park where we've invested millions upon millions of dollars into a really uh, strong and robust stormwater infrastructure. And then we have the reality of just existing neighborhoods, existing shopping centers without this kind of stormwater infrastructure that um, that can hold and control the flow of that water. All right, so I know it's now fair to say that you're a little bit of a stormwater nerd. Yes, and you've known me since the the gecko of that. I mean, back when we were at American University, and I was like, guys, they're installing rain gardens. This is so cool. Do you know what a combined sewer overflow part was? And they're like, could you please go write about student government? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But for the people in Frederick who are wondering, you know, what happens with rain? I mean, it's been raining for the past couple of days already, and it's only May. Are we going to see another incident where a lot of the stormwater gets backed up again? Well, that's what's crazy, right? We don't always know when these kinds of events are going to happen. But on your typical rain event, like I was looking at the National Weather Service today, and today is Monday, um, just a few days before the anniversary, and we were only going to see a quarter inch of rain potentially come today, right? So think back to those five inches, why five inches of rain can accumulate into a really significant amount of rain. But we were going to get a quarter inch probably over a 24, 48-hour period today. So it has to go da- – it goes back to intensity and then also the saturation um, – of of the ground already so we've had a lot of rain like we have seen a fair amount of standing water in baker park i bet we're going to see more standing water in baker park but we're not going to see such an intense rainfall that's then sheeting off the ground and then um accumulating in spots kind of like in a flashy sense um that's another thing that uh, zach kirshner and i talked about which is that um carroll creek is a very flashy um body of water in that you know you're not going to see rain immediately cause a flood sometimes sometimes you need six seven hours for that water to to reach the body of water and for it to break its banks so i don't 
proclaim to be a flooding expert, um, but I do find stormwater to be incredibly interesting. And I think it's um, it's a really delicate balance between you know environmental controls and then um, health and human safety and just all these other areas. Uh, one thing that we do have that is an advantage over Washington, D.C. is that we have completely separate stormwater from our sewer system, which is definitely something that's really good because um, essentially they have two troughs in D.C. that run parallel to each other that can only hold a certain amount of rain and quite frequently they exceed it especially with the amount of pavement that they have there and so what it does is it washes over into the sewer and then it has to be like burst out of these pipes known as a combined sewer overflow and we get a lot of E. coli and fecal matter that ends up um, in places like the Potomac River you know which obviously is used as a drinking water supply and is very close to the uh, Chesapeake Bay so lots of things to consider environmentally there luckily in here in Frederick we do have separate systems for those now when we have an extreme amount of rain we do sometimes have overflows at our wastewater treatment plant but you're not having it every single rain event so there are some trade-offs there are you know there's a lot of nuance in this conversation all right, perfect. Well, is there anything else you think people should know about the flooding that happened last year? So one thing that Zach said to me, you know, I asked him, was was uh, was 2018 an outlier? Was this Is this something that we're not going to see again? And I think this goes back to your previous question. We would love to say that 2018 is an outlier, but I think when we think about stormwater, we need to continue to think about the fact that development hasn't stopped in the city of Frederick. Development hasn't stopped in Frederick County. Development hasn't stopped in Maryland. So we, as we add add more impervious surfaces, more hard surfaces, more houses, more roads, more driveways, we are going to continue to have to address and remediate um, for those hard surfaces. And so when we also think about a changing climate, we have to understand that one of the first predictions that they are seeing is that we could have more intense rainstorms, which goes back to that intensity, um, you know, point that we brought up earlier and then also more frequent storms so we could see more instances where we are pushing the capacity of our existing stormwater infrastructure so 2018 is definitely a noteworthy year because of just the extent of the flooding that we saw but I don't think that it will remain the only year where we see something like this and it will come down to how the city of frederick and how frederick county decides to move forward with upgrading maintaining and um, thinking holistically about their stormwater infrastructure all right well i definitely think you gave people a lot of information to think about and if you want to read samantha's story with jeremy you can check out the fredericknewspost.com thanks so much for coming in thanks so now we are at our point of our podcast where we are going to talk with Kate Masters about 72 hours and this week we also brought in Alan Etzler to talk about his cover story. So welcome Kate and Alan. Hey Heather. Thanks for having us. All right so Kate tell us a little bit about what we can expect with 72 hours. Okay well just to start um, one of my smaller stories this week was about a local filmmaker named Kyle Romanek, um, and he actually spent um, four years out in California filming footage on a farm called Apricot Lane Farms, um, and it turned into a documentary that actually um, premiered um, li- earlier this season at Toronto and Telluride Film Festivals, and it's called The Littlest Big Farm, and it's basically um, 
about the efforts of these farmers in California who were living in LA as a personal chef and um, coincidentally a documentary filmmaker who kind of got sick of the city life and moved out um, to the country to try to start a biodynamic farm in the California desert. And so um, he actually went onto the farm as a woofer, which is basically someone who, who it's a, it's a program that allows people to live and work on a farm, farm short time to learn about the process. And he ended up filming for them. He was out there for four years and shot a lot of the footage for what would become this documentary called The Littlest Big Farm. So I had a Q&A with Kyle um, about living on the farm and his process. And that'll go along with a home and garden story that uh, talks all about the film. So that's one of the stories for this week. Very cool. And how about your Taste Buds review? Oh, yeah. So... I ha- I know a lot of people tell me that I'm too mean when I do taste buds <laughs> or, or the reviews, um, but I actually, I think I looked back and I think that this is the highest rating I've ever given um, a place, so I guess that's pretty exciting, um, and the restaurant in question or, or bakery, um, more accurately, is called Deb's Artisan Bakehouse. It's a little shop out in Middletown, and it's run by a woman named Deb King, who spent 16 years pretty much um, raising her kids, and then, you know, decided she wanted to go back to work. Um, she was looking at jobs. You know, her resume was her resume was kind of out of date, so she decided, well, I'm going to use the opportunity. Um, you know, instead of doing short-term jobs that don't really mesh with me, I'm going to focus on baking, which I've always loved to do. And so she did, and the result was this bakehouse, and it's really, really phenomenal. Her um, big emphasis is on croissants, which if any any amateur baker can tell you that croissants are pretty uh, difficult to do because of all the laminating and layering, um, but she does a great job. She calls it a bakehouse because there's as much of an emphasis on um, savory pastries as sweet, and I really, really liked it and would highly urge um, people to visit what did you have when you were there oh my god I had so many pastries (laughs) I had a lot of croissants Um, she also does these amazing hand pies so the the weekend I went was this um, huevos rancheros hand pie where she paired black beans and fried eggs um, and avocado on this little pastry and that was amazing she also I had personally never heard of this before but she does these things called twice bakes which are basically croissants that are super crispy on the outside because they go in the oven for a second time and so I had a twice baked um, that was actually it was like white chocolate and raspberry on the inside, and I actually like laughed out loud when I first bit in. That's how good. That's how good it was. It was really really good. And then she also, if you're into super like trendy Instagrammable desserts, she does cruffins, which are croissants but shaped in a muffin tin. And they come in different flavors, um, but my favorite was the Boston cream pie. So you get like the traditional vanilla pastry cream with this layer of bittersweet chocolate on top. And that's another one where I think what I love most about it is that she's really good at at moderating the flavors and the sweetness because sometimes actually I don't like bakeries that much because you go and it's just way too much sugar. Like I'm too old for that. (laughs) But but, um, she does a really good job. So I was very impressed. All right. And so what about this? Bakehouse got its great rating and it's your highest rating at well just the taste like I I mean first of all I think that she gets extra points for being a really um, 
like a, a really small operation that it has really nailed the consistency. Like I said, you know, whenever I go do a review, I get in like an extreme amount of food just to, you know, sort of like get a sense of what everyone is doing. And she pretty much nailed everything I tasted, um, which is a big thing because consistency is really difficult. And then kind of like I was telling Alan, it's like the flavors and I think, um, you know, her creativity that really gave it an extra edge. Now, when you go to these things, because you're, you're kind of, the news posts resident baker in a lot of ways you, you and heather are kind of both the, the two people and caitlin who who bring the food in uh, a lot of times do you like steal tips from these people sometimes was there any tip you got from the baker you know i she was so busy that i wasn't asking her a ton of questions um like some of i mean i think from deb when i because it usually you know before i actually go I, I interview and i you know try to get the story of the restaurant as well and so i was just kind of inspired by a lot of her recipes um so i would really love to try croissants on my own i might go out and try to be ambitious and do naturally leavened croissants but that's kind of a different story. <laughs> well, if you want to bring in a croissant, I yeah. am a willing participant <laughs> to help taste those. Okay. <laughs> I do have to say I'm a little sad that I was not invited to this Taste Buds. Yeah, I'm sorry. I went on like sa- I went 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning or something. So it was... I'm a little less sad now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, is there anything else about um, the review or the Q&A that you want to talk about? No. The only other story that I like to mention is that... Um, Readers might know that I do a weekly column called What I Love in Frederick this week because sometimes I focus a lot on like critical things. So I wanted to do, you know, nice things in Frederick. Um, And usually I don't promote those as much, but there was one um, this week that focused on the Arts Council and they actually just established a number of individual artist grants. in in memory of uh, a local artist named Carl Butler. And I did want to mention those because the deadline is May 24th at midnight. Um, It's four grants in total, and three of them are $2,000 stipends. And then the fourth is actually a residency at a very prestigious um, art program in the south of France. And so I just wanted to get the word out there because, you know, I've heard from a lot of local artists um, frustrations about the lack of opportunities in Frederick. So I think that this is an opportunity, you know, to really... um, support local artists and sort of um, there's money and display opportunities as well. All right, great. And so since we have both Alan and Kate here, I do want to mention that they are going to start being our advice columnists. So do you two want to tell us a little bit about what that is and invite people to ask some questions? Yeah, I you know, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you've read like Dear Abby or more contemporarily Dear Prudence over on Slate, it's kind of in that vein. You know, I think that Alan and I are definitely like the smartest people in, wow. the, in the newsroom. Thank you. I'm flattered. I'm going to take offense to that. <laughs> But, you know, we want to solve people's problems and give advice and hopefully, you know, like people will get a kick out of it. And so we're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the cool thing, you know, something that you're going to get from us that you don't necessarily get from Dear Abby is varied perspectives. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, You know, Dear Abby, you're going to get a perspective of one person and, and with us. You know, me and Kate, we're similar in some ways, but also, you know, we come from different different backgrounds. You know, I'm from here. Kate's not necessarily from here. And and those are like those different perspectives are good things. And they push discourse forward in a time when uh, it's hard to talk to people yeah. in, in some ways. And for sure, like I think that sometimes you have a problem and maybe you want two different yeah. pieces of advice. Everyone loves options. All right. And so can people just ask anything are there any oh yes oh yeah like nothing we, is off limits <laughs> nothing is off the table we're, right. we're like also I, I think the cool thing about about kate because I, I sit next to kate in the office and one of the things that i really enjoyed is like 
almost nothing's uncomfortable to talk about for me and her. Like uh, I'll tackle anything. I think she's the same way. So I'm cool with anything as uncomfortable as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited as the other person who sits next to both of yeah. you to see what you guys talk about <laughs> when you get these questions. All right. Perfect. Well, the other reason Alan is in here is because he's writing the cover story. So why this week are you writing the cover story, Alan? Yeah, for sure. So, um, uh, that kind of goes along with with what we brought up with the advice column. Seventy two hours is going uh, through a redesign that will uh, launch next week, and we wanted to kick it off really big. And Kate's working on a big story, and you kind of heard her mention a little bit ago about artists who are a little frustrated with kind of lack of opportunities, and that's part of this story uh, that she's working on for next week. So I stepped in just to kind of help out, and um, the story this week is uh, Alive at Five, which is. Um, that kicked off last Thursday. It's a big event for the city of Frederick, and um, it's in its 16th year. It kind of, and the story that I wanted to do was kind of look at the soul of Alive at Five and if it's changed. And um, the purpose of Alive at Five started as this kind of business network, citywide happy hour type of thing, type of event uh, that happened to have live music. And a lot of the artists that I that I talked to throughout this process, they're pleased that a they have a place to play. Uh, just getting that is kind of a big deal here. Um, but more importantly, there's getting a a larger emphasis put on the music, and people are paying attention to the music that that is there, and um, they're really happy with the direction that Alive at Five is kind of going. And it's it's still at its root this kind of happy hour event and this kind of networking opportunity. But it also gives a big platform for, for our local artists, which I think is really cool. How many local artists are on the slate this year? Because honestly, I haven't even looked. Yeah, it's 21. So last year they did 21 for the first time. Uh, they had a few rainouts. And, and every year they have a few rainouts. We'll probably expect a few this year as well. But uh, So 21 was supposed to be kind of the record-breaking number. This year it's 21 again. But they could have had 22, but they took July 4th off okay. for, for ba- uh, you know Baker Park Party in the Park thing that they, they do every year. Um, so yeah, it's, it's got a chance to be its biggest year ever and they've broken attendance records the last three times in the last two years and attendance was up again, uh, last Thursday, which is, which is a good sign for them. All right. And any particular bands that people should come out for? Oh gosh. As somebody, I'm not like super plugged into the music scene. I really enjoyed Freddie Long. I thought he was great. Um, yeah, it, uh, Colin McGuire wrote a column about the five bands that you should you should go see. The one the one person I'm really excited to see is Luna. I really like Luna. Luna she's has a, really, a, a really great, great voice. I don't know, like she seems to like kind of come with a different band every <laughs> every year, like she does it. But uh, like last year, she was supposed to perform with the Lost Keys. This year, it's it's this new band that she put together. But she has a phenomenal voice, uh, and uh, she's working on an album. She's been working on an album for a long time, and I'm really looking forward to when that comes out. And then Stitch Early. Uh, uh, kind of a local hip hop rapper type type vein uh, that we don't get a lot of, and, and he's really good and, and really popular. And uh, I know we like him at the news post too. He, <laughs> he's a, a, a character. All right. Frederick and Cut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio, and me, Wyatt Massey, and edited by Graham Cullen. See you next week.